Welcome to On the Table, a podcast about board games, card games, and tabletop war games. All right, welcome back to episode 69 of the On the Table Gaming podcast. And boy, do we have a treat for you today. So last week was the Master of Westeros, uh, a Commander TV-sponsored tournament for Song of Ice and Fire, the miniatures game. And it took place in France. There was over 100 participants. And basically what they tried to do was take the top talent from all across Europe. And so we've got with us Micah again, the top-ranked free folk player in Europe. You might remember him from episode 64. Micah, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So you're a veteran to the podcast, so we won't go over the how did you get into gaming and all that stuff. So we can jump right into the good stuff. What was your general experience like at this Masters of Westeros uh, tournament? Um, yeah, it was very well organized. Um, let, yeah, let me start at the beginning. So we, we have a big room, um, but clumsy tables. So um, we have only three foot versus uh, three foot. So no space for any tactics board. So it was very... Um, a little cramped. It's hard to fit 100 people into a space, right? Yeah, but but <laughs> the uh, good thing about it, um, the sound. The sound was excellent. Of course, it was uh, opera or so something like this. You could very good hear your opponent. Uh, didn't get too loud. So normally, uh, in, in, when you play in shops or something like this, 20 players, you can't hear a word from your opponent because <laughs> right. it's so loud. And there, uh, the sound was just perfect. Oh, that's amazing. Then the timetable was, yeah straightforward and um they yeah they did uh two hours uh they, they made two hours available for the game with 50 minutes for setup uh, and terrain setup army setup uh, 90 minutes of gaming time and the last 15 minutes uh to end your last round and, um, and i heard there was some pretty awesome prize support as well <laughs> oh yes <laughs> Um, they gave out um, a lot of boxes during the games for um, challenges, um, something like first blood or first Stark unit destroyed, first Lannister unit destroyed, first Lannister who charges and so on. So I guess that were five, six unit boxes per game uh, over seven games. Oh my gosh, that's and, insane. <laughs> what? And in addition, uh, they had... I think five starter boxes to give away for the best painted and for the for the top players. In addition to um, two two hundred euro vouchers uh, for shopping in Thailand or something like this. Okay, sweet. Yeah, really big price support. I saw some other images too of some some t-shirts and some some oh, yeah. uh, mugs and stuff as well. Yeah, every player uh, got a mug and a t-shirt in his size um, just for showing up. That's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, so before we jump into the specifics of it, so overall, you'd say it was, a, it was a really good time. Yes. You'd hope to see more. If they did another Masters of Westeros, you would sign up and go? Yes, it was a blast. And the guys, they are so nice. All my uh, opponents were so nice. I had a really, really great, great time. Seven great games. <laughs> That's a lot in a day, too, boy. No, two two days. Um, four games the first day, three day, uh, games the second day. Yeah. So what did you guys do like after the games too? Did you did people hang out after in the evening? <laughs> uh, mm, you could hang out in the evening, but we just uh, went to a um, restaurant, ate a bit, and just 
fell into bed. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that sounds I about think, right for a, a major tournament. I think we discussed uh, calories uh, on tournaments uh, in a former <laughs> podcast. Um, I, I, if I remember correctly, I had uh, 5,500 calories the first day because the games were very, very, very tight. And uh, yeah, the second day only uh, about uh, 3,500 calories. So really intense games, really intense time. So you just want to play and go to sleep if you if you want to play at the top. That's amazing. So you had the some of the top players in Europe were there. Uh, and I know you had, uh, there's some some competition for you in the free folk field with some of the top <laughs> French players. Um, but, uh, you know, with the top players being there, um, what did the spread of factions look like? And when you got there and you saw what people were playing, were there, were there any surprises or things that you kind of expected? Nothing unexpected, I have to say. Um, I expected um, how stark to be the most players, most players uh, to feel how stark, and it was exactly that. Um, I can, yeah, maybe I can uh, tell the faction breakdown. Yeah. We had uh, 31 Stark players, 24 Lannister players, 19 Nightwatch players, nine Free Folk players, um, six Baratheons, three Targaryens, and two Neutrals. Wow. And the crazy thing was those two Neutrals, only two Neutral players, and we saw one taking 11th and one taking 12th. Yes. Um, that's impressive. Yes, they were really good. So they represented their faction well here. So mostly House Stark, which is interesting. Were there any particular lists that seemed to be kind of dominant with the Starks? Was nobody taking wolves because apparently, you know, was nobody taking any wolves because of the new change to victory points? <laughs> what do those lists look like just in general? Um, I want to speak for the top players. So the top players of House Stark... Um, tend to go activation heavy so nine and ten activations um so you saw a lot of howland reed mm -hmm. i think how how i can <laughs> hear him howling that. in the background <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no that's my army <laughs> that's your army your free folk horde all right uh, free <laughs> um she, she wants to be a giant Maybe. there we Maybe. go all right um no howland reed was in my opinion, uh, the most dominant uh, list, the most dominant um, commander, uh, followed by Roderick and, yeah, Rob Stark. Um, yeah, and the thing about Howland Reed was that they had um, four really tough combat units, um, something like Berserkers uh, or Outriders, um, and then fill up with, yeah, lighter units. Hmm. That's a, that's a particularly as a free folk player. That is a challenging style of play, to, a, a list to play into. I, I often don't like playing into high activation Stark lists. Um, yeah, that's right. And the Starks, as in my opinion, the Starks were the toughest matchups by far. Yeah, it was um, played with <laughs> lots of activations. So a core of five combat units and two wolves um typically um for pretty strong combat units like um seven or eight points uh with attachments um yeah and you just had a control because because of the activations you um 
most often had the last activation and then the first again, so you could uh, do a really, really good uh, double strike and Berserkers just annihilates anything that moves uh, in a double strike. Hmm, man, that, yeah, that's tough. So that was a, that was maybe one of the most common lists you're thinking then? For the top players, yes. Okay. So it's interesting when people all show up and they've kind of uh, come up with their, maybe their own independent ways of narrowing down to really finely tuned list. And it turns out that a lot of people are running a similar thing to that. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed, um, I think our gaming group, um, the East Germans, came up with um, a Howlet Reed list in this style with, with 10 activations. The West Germans, like Yannick, came up with a 10 activation Howlet Reed list. And the French players also, um, with, without connecting each, each other. So they all came up with this list on their own. So it definitely is um, the best thing in all the local metas. What uh, so? What were you running? Obviously, free folk. But um, <laughs> what list did you bring into it? Because the last time we talked, it was actually right before the one point five point one update, and you gave out an awesome weeper list, and you gave some really great advice for how to play free folk. I had a lot of success following some of your tips, and then, of course, just as I was getting comfortable, um, there were some changes, and cave dwellers kind of got reworked in a way that they don't really do the same thing that they used to. And kind of that linchpin unit for the list that you were suggesting and the strategy you were using, I find it, it sort of has shifted away from that a little bit. So yeah, what did you run in this tournament? So um, I played um, Hama Commander. Um, I played the list since December when the skin changes came out mm -hmm. um, and just had to rearrange my NCUs because um, Steyr got up, uh, went up a point. Um, so I played four raiders, one with Harma and skin changer, the other three with a skin changer, a unit of trappers with a skin changer, a second unit of trappers without anything, and a unit of uh, spear wave with a skin changer. And then I added um, steer or styre. I don't know <laughs> how do you call them. <laughs> like typically, um, styre. Yeah, and it, we say steer here in oh. Europe. <laughs> so. Uh, I added Steyr, um, Egret, and Lady Val. So that was my... So mm -hmm. with the increase from three points to four points on Steer or Steyr, um, you, you, that sort of pushed him out of your list? In, uh, out of this list. The okay. other list uh, had Men's Raider, but no Steer or Steyr. Okay. Uh, yeah, so that's and... a lot of bears. So what's the general idea with this list? How are you pulling this all together? Um, yeah, I normally take uh, one eagle and five beers. Um, bears. <laughs> five beers, and then you take the five bears. That's, yeah, that's, that's right. Um, yeah, five bears. Um, and just push forward and try to threaten the opponent with the bears and charge him first with the bears and block him because two wounds with three plus save is, is not bad. Yeah, no, that's, and that's a lot of free wounds that you're getting through. Hmm. I want to make him uh, move so that my trappers do some wounds. Uh, yeah, and then flank him. Just try to flank him. Man, okay. And of course, that's my army um, against aggressive armies like um, Gregor Clegane or Starks. Just uh, be because the bears can take the impact. 
Right. And okay, and you're and you're always taking one eagle just to be able to have um, that option. Yes, the eagle is, in my opinion, the most important animal. Interesting, because and having this control, yeah. this this uh, speed control to to um, yeah, get longer charges and ignore the terrain, um, is just extreme important for free folk. Okay, so that that's a pretty solid list. And then, what was your backup list then? How are you preparing for the other side of things? And this is against an aggressive list. Yeah, uh, the, my second list was the Reaper list. Um, I had four raiders, one of them with Hama and the Skin Changer. Um, I had then again two trappers, one trapper with a Skin Changer, and I had the followers of Bone with the Reaper and the Skin Changer. Then I added uh, Lady Val, Egret, and Mance Raider. Okay, Lady Val, Egret, and Mance Raider. So, and so basically, the skin changers are a core part of all your your units here now. Yes, because they um, add some versatility. Um, you have throw ray units. Um, you can move forward where you don't want your your radar units or trappers uh, to be because they could be charged but uh, if the opponent charges your bears um, you have them in a bad position the opponents and can charge uh, your opponents so you can use the bears as a bait you can use the bears to protect your follower of bones because they are so fragile you want a bear in front of them hmm. um, yeah and you can use them with harmer um, as a guided missile, just shoot a bear into your opponent with the free maneuver. So, for example, against um, Starks or other uh, free folks, uh, free folk players with more activations, you can use the bear from uh, the, the Hama bear as a cavalry unit. Mm. And so, yeah, just have more range. A more threat range, a higher threat range than your opponent. And this worked pretty well against the free for player in the final game. And so, you know, overall, how did you do? How did you feel about the games you played? That's um, a pretty that's a pretty deep roster. There's a lot of people there. You know, you're doing seven hours, another, you know, another day of games, and you ended up in in 10th place. So you're pretty yes. happy about where you landed? Of course. Uh, I mean I was the highest ranking free folk player in the tournament. Um, and yeah, only some Night's Watch and a lot of Stark players um, ranked higher. So, of course, for, for free folk uh, means it was pretty good. Right. So, out of the top um, 10, there were six Stark players, uh, two, uh, three Night's Watch, and then one free folk player. Yeah. That's a lot of Starks. Um, and yeah, and the, the, you were you were way up there. Uh, and considering also, you know, how many Starks were playing, uh, it kind of makes sense that you know if there's a huge number of Starks playing, you might see it skew a little bit that way in the finals. Uh, but with a much smaller pool, I think especially for the free folk and then those two neutrals, it's really impressive how well you guys stacked up. Yeah, it was especially impressive uh, how bad the Lannisters fared. Um, I think the best Lannister player was on 16. 
Yes. Yeah. And it was the um, faction with the second most players. Hmm. That really is interesting. What, do you have any theories about why that might be? Um, I think the shift in meta was so huge now with um, all the updates, with the Baratheons uh, coming out, um, with the Freefork, um, Freefork changes and Freefork becoming popular. Um, I think the Lannisters, they, they play the old lists. They, they have no um, standard list uh, that, that can handle all types uh, of opponents. So if you look at the Starks, they have the Howland Reed list. They have maybe to lesser um, a degree the Rob list and mm. they have Roderick. And so they have three kind of standard approaches um, to tackle all threats. The Lannisters don't have this. They, they have to find a way in the future to, yeah, they, they have to um, find a new type of army to tackle all those threats. Hmm. They're just in, in the face of finding that perfect army. Gotcha. So there is it because you think there is a missing unit or that there are somehow missing options that other factions have? Or do you just think it's just a matter of them finding the right combination of things already in existence? Um, I think it's mostly uh, finding the best combination of units. Okay. So it's not like a glaring, it's not like a design flaw or anything like that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think, yes, the um, activation advantage of the Starks um, is crippling for the Lannisters. Mm -hmm. um, then with, with the, yeah, <laughs> with the increase of um, Roderick lists, um, yeah, appearance of Roderick lists, um, all their old tactics like, um, yeah, just spamming out Knights of Castle Rock um, got nerfed on a on a soft level um, because Roderick can re uh, really good control all the cavalry, all the um, hard-hitting units just by um, ignoring their attack abilities. Hmm. Um, and of course, World of Frey just punishes all the Death Stars. Right. And I think Lannisters was always a faction where you have uh, or had one to two uh, Death Stars and you just worked with them while uh, your Lannister guards uh, hold the line. So do you think that's partially um, a shift that we're seeing kind of globally here when people are talking about, you know, oh, the Free Folk, it's so overpowered or, oh, the House Stark is overpowered, is that um, they're having a hard time really adapting to more higher activation armies that can be higher activations but do a lot of work and aren't just like a single you know death star unit based army um yes but with some factions you cannot adapt you cannot play right. um nine or more activations if you, if you play lenses with nine or more activations you, you can, i think the maximum is uh, nine if you play high sparrow um but we're living yeah, in an era where maybe like four combat unit metas uh, yeah. might be more struggling a lot more. Yes, I, I think you, if you want to be uh, successful, you have to push in the direction of five combat units. But 
it means for uh, Lannisters that their combat units are very soft. Right. Because they have to um, spread the points evenly about the combat units, where Starks can um, focus them on four combat units and then increase the activations with the uh, one-point wolves. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Hmm. Well, so one of the interesting things that it comes up a lot uh, is the difference between the European sort of meta and the American meta. And I'm kind of using these terms softly, uh, but uh, it often seems like when we talk in the, that sort of parlance and those sort of terms, that the European meta is more defined by typically running three NCUs, where in the American meta, it's much more common to see two NCUs. Um, you know, if you were going to help explain or you're going to try and help convince uh, an American player, you know, what's why they should maybe consider taking on this more European style of play? You know, how would you sell them on this idea? I mean, this idea of running three NCUs. Like, why should you consider making a switch to considering running three NCUs in your list? Um, if there's a chance that I play those American players, maybe in the future, I uh, don't want to convince them to play three NCU. <laughs> because oh, be I see how it is. Much easier. So you're going to be on here to be like, listen, Americans, if you're listening to this podcast, one NCU, no NCUs, just run. No that. NCU is the best yeah. because yeah. you have a lot more board control. Oh, jeez. All right. Fair enough. Okay, Increase well, why your is board that? presence. <laughs> so I, you'll have to say, as a free folk player, I was running a lot of two NCUs. And when you came on the podcast last time, you know, it got me thinking. And I was running basically your list. And it, and it worked really well. And when things changed, I said, you know what? Like, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep uh, I'm gonna keep messing around with three NCUs. And for me personally, in the limited games that I've been really trying to experiment with this, um, it, it feels kind of nice. It feels like if you run three NCUs and your opponent has two, at least as free folk. And also, my other caveat is I've been playing a lot against Baratheons, and they're you know just out of the starter box. But um, Running three NCUs against two, uh, you can kind of bully them a little bit. And uh, and if I'm running two and my opponent has three, I'm also kind of on the back foot in some regards. So if they're running three NCUs, I want to have three NCUs. And, and it sort of starts this weird escalation. Um, but I think some people would cry out and say, no, you need the physical combat presence of combat troops. And that undermines that. Do you agree with that? No. So what, I, why not though? I help maybe can we help articulate why two NCUs? Um, I think. Uh, oh, my, wait, sorry. Uh, why three NCUs? Yeah, <laughs> three. Uh, I think the three or four points spent uh, in a third and uh, NCU is much more valuable than uh, three or four points um, in uh, yeah two more attachments or three more attachments uh, on the field. Um, because the attachments or the improved uh, strength of the units can only be used maybe in two rounds of the game because typically you are about two rounds in combat before you get destroyed or before you destroyed your enemy and move on. Um, and the third NCU, you can use every round, so six times or most often uh, four to five times in a game. Um, and even if you don't want, for example, the swords, you want to deny your opponent to take the swords, for example, with Lady Val or Craster to get uh, extra tactic cards or something like this. Um, so it's, on one hand, denial effect. So just deny your opponent a resource. And on the other hand, you want to uh, use all available resources. Hmm. 
I mean, I think that's that's a pretty compelling argument. Um, do you think that rule holds true for all factions, or are there some factions where you know the NC the NCUs maybe aren't as good as the combat attachments, or you know there are I'm thinking of like Lannisters, uh, was it Preston Greenfield, where you can like draw cards every time you do an activation, and I'm like, oh, that seems maybe better than a NCU. No, I would say um, it's true for all factions. Um, maybe I'm. I'm not quite sure for Targaryens because um, you have the NCU that can uh, remove a activation token. So mm -hmm. maybe you can um, play a style of army where you definitely want uh, the last spot on the um, tactics board after your combat units activated. So to remove your activation token maybe from a unit of veterans and go on doing damage. Mm -hmm. um, but I think... Um, that's yeah. Two NCUs only are viable in really specific army builds. So if you're listening and you do often run three NCUs, or maybe you play, you know, two NCUs frequently in a three NCU meta and and do well with that, uh, let us know on our Facebook page in the comments below this podcast episode. And I'm particularly interested if you're in another meta like in Thailand or in Australia, somewhere outside of Europe or the US. How are you guys playing? Um, and, and I guess the end question for this particular topic would be, do you see these as two distinct styles of play that are going to continue on sprouting in their separate trajectories? Or do you think there's going to be a certain point where they collide and there's going to be a clear winner where, uh, you know, people are going to say, you know what, it's, it's one or the other. You really should be running three or you really should be running two. Or are they kind of just defined by the local people that you're playing against? I think um free ncus will succeed so we, we had this discussion in paris <laughs> mm -hmm. um where we talked to different people from different um gaming groups and they all said they started with two ncu and then one player uh, used three ncus they they saw that it's kind of feels bad if you play against three ncus because he always have um, the additional resource that he always has, for example, uh, the free attack action um, mm -hmm. in a round and you are not able to block it. Um, and so they moved uh, slowly to free NCUs. One player started with free NCUs and the other players in the gaming group then, um, yeah. So you're kind of saying, it seems same. like you're implying that it's an evolution. Yes, it um, is an evolution. So one thing that's kind of interesting about the United States is um, as far as like tournament play, we do have big tournaments, Adepticon, Gen Con. Um, but uh, I think in a lot of ways, because we're such a spread out nation, um, we have a lot of smaller like, you know, we have an East Coast meta and we have a, a Midwest meta and like, you know, the the West Coast or like the California, Southern California meta. And so people, you know, a lot of times there'll be a big tournament or event that might draw a few people from across the country, but a lot of times it's still very dominated by like those local groups where it sounds like for the European, uh, the masters of Westeros, you drew people from all over Europe, from a lot of different communities. And I wonder if the geography of America itself like impacts the way our metas are developing. Like, is there uh, less cross-pollination or something? Yes, I think that's the case. Um, we had the same thing in, when, the, when the tournament community was very young in Germany. Um, we had, for example, the, the eastern part of Germany played um, from the beginning very competitively. So we tried to build 
Armies and Army Lists that um, are designed to win games, to win mm -hmm. tournaments. Um, and when we first met the Western part uh, of the German players, um, we noticed that a lot of them played two NCUs. And then they got influenced by the very successful free NCU players and also started to use free NCUs. And so, so the um, free NCU thing spread across Germany. And I think the same is true for uh, for France. So you, yes, you, you have local matters, maybe with two or three NCUs, and but you, you need the um, you need the events where all the matters, all the gaming groups connect together. And I think this kind of um, event is missing in the US. Yeah, I think I think I might agree with that. I mean, we do have great events, and I'm not trying to knock any events we have. Um, you know, Adepticon's coming up. That's a great one. And I'm hoping we get, a, I think they're going to try and run like a 60 person tournament there, which is great. But I do wonder if we're still really in our infancy in the US when it comes to this sort of tournament play or on the negative side, does our physical geography, will that maybe always impair this sort of play? Yeah, I think you, you have, um, yeah, something like gaming incest. <laughs> uh clarify no, please I, 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 I don't mean it in a negative way i don't mean it in a negative way i mean you, yeah, yeah, fair. it's very game of, it's very on topic for game of thrones i suppose but is that yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> hello lannister players <laughs> oh gosh all right uh yeah all right well what do you what do you mean by that so um i think you you don't you cross not often enough of uh, other gaming groups, I mm -hmm. guess. So if you have a big tournament like Gen Con or something like this, um, how many players from a, from a certain gaming group, maybe from, from the other side of the country, come to that right. event? One, so two, three in right. Germany? Or maybe they're one or two from a bunch of different spots yeah. Yeah. versus yeah. you know the local community might have m many representatives there. Yeah. For example, mm. in Paris, um, we France has about 200 tournament players. And um, 90 of the tournament players um, played in the Paris tournament. So 40% of the total tournament players um, from all of the gaming groups um, met each other in a central tournament and, right. of course, affected each other. And for the US, I don't know, I think you are thousands of uh, tournament players. So <laughs> um, if you want to transfer to um, the US, you have... Uh, to do a tournament with um, 500 um, participants, 500 right. players to, to get the same effect we have in Europe? That's a really interesting point. Um, so here's a question. And so I'll be kind of honest here. For those of you that are listening, there is a tabletop simulator mod online. Uh, I've played a few games on there. I'm, I just really like pushing my models around. I like pushing my miniatures around. I, I, the, the computer version was not as great. But I wonder, do you think there would ever be an idea of maybe doing like a, an online version or like uh, to test, you know, some different metas? I think the tabletop simulator is perfect for doing um, online gaming uh, versus the, yeah, between different countries and different, uh, yeah, time zones and so on. So we we use it a lot um, in our gaming group just to test different army ideas, just to um, test things out. And of course, even in Germany, you uh, have to drive a while to get to another player if you're not in a big city. So I'm in a more rural area and I love it. 
it's a great opportunity to play against totally different people, to connect to um, a guy 500 kilometers or 1,000 kilometers or 20,000 kilometers away. Well, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but now I'm just starting to think. I wonder if we did like a small uh, a test run, like a small online tabletop simulator tournament with like a few, maybe like an invite only for like exhibition matches. Would that be something you might be interested in participating in? Yes, of course. Oh my goodness. All right. So maybe we do that and we could, uh, maybe I'll do that and I'll record some and do some commentary and we could talk about the videos and uh, it might be fun, fun way to break down some of the gameplay. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I will look into that then. Is that something to put in, put some, <laughs> uh, put some thought into? Um, and yeah. So, I mean, it's great tournament. I hope we get to see more like these uh, coming up. This, the, the Masters of Westeros, um, that sounds like an amazing event. And a lot of people were talking about how great it was. Um, yep. After the yes. tournament, what's your, kind of your feelings on where do you think factions stand right now? There's a lot of kind of, there's moments of panic. And, uh, you know, I think right now I'm, I, where I'm at, uh, the coronavirus or COVID-19 is just hitting and there's, there's a lot of panic about that. But I feel like I could see some of that sometimes in the Song of Ice and Fire community after a change or even like a tournament result will come out from like one tournament and people will be like, oh my gosh, this is the end of the world. This faction is horrible or it's, it's, it's too powerful. Um, we also, there is also a Song of Ice and Fire stats, which lets users input data. Um, I think they're still gathering information though. So sometimes those statistics I think might be misused by members of the community that are reading certain things that they want to see into it while it's still kind of building up. Um, but what's, you know, at the risk of adding to this panic, what is your overall sense of where the game balance might be in regards to these factions? Is there anything that you see as really healthy or perhaps problematic with the way things are balanced? I think the state of the game is very healthy. I think um, all the factions, okay, except Targaryens and Baratheons, because they only have their starter sets, um, are on nearly the same um, strength. Um, maybe I'm a bit biased, but uh, beca because I have um, among my closest friends play Starks, and I played a lot um, in preparation for the tournament against these Starks. Um, and of course, the <laughs> the ladder of the tournament, um, the six Starks uh, in the top 10, just proved what I was thinking. And of course, I think Starks are at the moment a little bit, just a little, 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 little bit over the top. Okay. Um, and what, what makes that though? Is it just because there's so many people playing it? And, or is there, is it a specific, a specific commander or tactics cards or just that they're able to get these cheap activations? I think the cheap activations are the key. The cheap activations combined with the extremely potent, um, combat units combined with the extremely potent and offensive, um, tactic deck. So, um, I think the change that. Um, uh, the changes that were made with 1.5 was a uh, de decrease in points for Bran and Hodor and Rickon. Um, what I see now in the in all the Stark list from the, I think, 50% uh, up players, so uh, the players that plays uh, in tournaments 50, uh, in, in the other half, they just auto-include um, Rickon and Bran just because they get two extra activations for three points. Even with the downside of Rickon giving out a VP? Um, Rickon giving out a VP is 
Yes, of course, it's a downside, but you have to destroy the unit. Right. Breaking is normally in a unit, maybe like uh, mercenaries, uh, Stormcrow mercenaries who sit in the back, just guarding an objective. Um, and he has run kit uh, or run child run. Mm -hmm. So the, you, you don't often get this VP. Hmm. It's no big uh, downside. I think the upside from uh, Osha with the Godan fighting, <laughs> it's a much stronger upside than the downside. Of Rican. And there's also been recently some talk about people being like, oh, the sky is falling at like, or a lot of concern that maybe free folk are too powerful now with the skin changers. You know, any credence yeah. to that? Or, or what do you think? I think not. The, the skin changers are good, um, especially against um, not so skilled opponents. Um, if the opponent is very skilled, um, he has ways to mitigate the threat from the skin changers. For example, um, I think. There was the uh, threat, or, or the yeah the threat that um, Hama with skin changers is broken because um, with the fainting maneuver you can get inside of a unit, uh, use steer uh, on the right. unit, and just do insane amounts of damage. Yes, it works if the player allows it. If the, right, there's like four. There's it. like a four, four like steps in there that could be blocked or yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. And when I play um, potent opponents like um, Yannick, for example, he just don't let me do that. Um, and when he has to break his formation um, to claim objectives or something like this, he always has rares in mm. this particular list, yeah. maybe, um, and then. He can block this, or he knows exactly. Okay, I have to break my formation now. There's uh, the threat of being flanked by Hama. Okay, I'm the first player. I use uh, the maneuver spot so to block your, the opponent this ability. Or he says, okay, maybe he does this uh, fending maneuver, but I don't care because um, I, I can sacrifice this unit. I can sacrifice um, this this flank. Um, when I am holding all the objective, all the other objectives. So um, I think good players don't get affected much by the skin changers. And on the other hand, I think skin changers for the free folk players are necessary um, to have a chance against very aggressive armies. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of people that are really struggling with the, the skin changers actually probably, well, I'm basing this on a few people I know, but play in, in metas that have very aggressive styles, right? And if the, the whole meta skews aggressive, skin changers can come in here with the free folk and they can really kind of upend that whole style of play. Yeah, I think also um, that most of the players who complain about it don't have much um, experience against free folk. Right. Um, for example, I played a guy um, in a tournament and I just crushed his Lannisters, but he never played against uh, a free folk style uh, or a free folk list of this uh, style he i think he has no free for player in this area so he had in total two or three uh, games against free folk so yeah of, of course they cannot know what free folk is capable of right. if they never play against but it any army would be terrifying if you didn't know what they did at all yes exactly. i remember when we were at pax when night's watch came out and we got the first <laughs> box sets on the table and they were just clobbering everybody because we had no you know, context of how to deal with, you know, guys with critical blow and sundering and these crazy vows. And 
and they just didn't know what they could do. Watcher on the wall. Like the first time that card gets played, you're like, wait, what? They can do what? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so yeah. All right. Interesting perspective there. Um, so uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think about that, I think that probably rounds up our talk about the tournament. Um, I really do appreciate you coming on here. Yeah, thank you. And I also want to thank uh, the French organizer. It was a blast. The tournament was, was really, really, really good. Um, from the organization standpoint, it was the best I've ever seen. So um, you got all the, the pairings uh, in the internet. So the website was updated so that no player... Uh, has to look on um, sheets or something like this. They all can um, see the pairings on their smartphones. It was extremely good. The best I've ever seen. Perfect, guys. Well, that's amazing. Thank hopefully you they very set much. The, hopefully they set the standard for things going forward and maybe other tournaments will follow suit. Yeah, I hope so. Well, thank you so much for coming on and I hope you many glorious victories to come. <laughs> and in the meantime, for everybody else, I hope you get your miniatures on the table. Da, 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 da. <laughs>